Land, Water, Wildlife, a podcast produced by the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, connecting you to nature. Thanks for listening to episode five of our podcast that we launched two months ago. I'm Barbara Lindstrom, Communications Director for the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, better known as SCCF. We're producing this podcast on our phones using a free digital platform so that we can bring you conversations about the work we do to conserve and protect the coastal habitats and aquatic resources on Sanibel and Captiva and the surrounding watershed. Today, I'm joined by the island's only two burn bosses who are trained and certified in wildland firefighting by the Florida Forest Service. I'd like to welcome my colleagues, land conservation steward, Victor Young, Welcome, Victor. Hello. Thanks for uh, having me, and it's nice to be here. Good to have you. And we also have Habitat Management, uh, Wildlife and Habitat Management Director, Chris Lekowitz. Hi. How are you doing? Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. About uh, two and a half weeks ago, in cooperation with the City of Sanibel and other local partners, SCCF announced that we're planning to conduct a prescribed burn uh, of a portion of the Eric Lindblad Preserve in the coming weeks. The intent of the burn is to preserve the natural ecology of the area and reduce the likelihood of catastrophic wildfires. Victor, you're the designated burn boss for this burn. Can you tell us what that means? What's the role of a burn boss? The role of a, of a burn boss is primarily you're the main person that has all the responsibility of the burn. And, and that goes into the responsibility of planning the burn, uh, making sure you have everything that you need to have for the burn, organizing the uh, the people for the burn, and then um, managing the burn while it's it's, it's actually being executed. Okay. So you're pretty much responsible from the beginning to the end of, of the fire. And you're certified to do that by the Florida Forest Service. Correct. Okay. So uh, can you explain why the first public announcement, um, and this is the protocol for any burn, uh, why it can't specify a date? Well, we try not to specify a specific date until the actual day of the burn or the day before the burn, because it's so hard to, to really uh, get, I guess, the uh, Basically, the, the, the biggest component is, is the weather. And so we can't really predict the weather or fire weather really good until a couple of days out. So, you know, we know we're, we have good ground conditions to do a burn, but we might not have weather conditions. So basically what we're doing is we're waiting for a window to get the perfect weather hmm. and also to have all the staff uh, scheduling lined up. So, you know, so we have to have that. So we can't give a specific date, you know, too far out. So how's it looking now in terms of the, in, the environmental and the forecast conditions uh, for when this burn might take place? So the, the ground conditions are looking really good. You know, when I talk about the ground conditions, I'm you know, talking about the fire lines and I'm talking about the, the, the fuels that we, that we have available. Um, you know, so we can get through the fire lines, you know, before we had a little bit of flooding out there, but now it's kind of dried up. But the weather uh, is not looking uh, the greatest right now for, for burning. A lot of the fire weather is actually, the parameters are actually pretty good. 
but the wind directions are are the wrong direction right now for what we're uh, looking for. Hmm. So how does how does the wind direction play into um, you know what's optimal for a burn? So the the biggest responsibility that we have as burn bosses is not only the safety of the the crew and everyone else during the burn, but it's also the safety of people downwind. Mm. So we don't want to be putting smoke into residential areas, business areas, um, other significant areas like schools or or airports, stuff like that. So we have to have specific set of uh, wind conditions, primarily direction. So we're not putting uh, wind in the, or uh, smoke in the sensitive areas. Oh, so in this case with the Lindblad preserve, then what, what, What's the specifics there in terms of direction? So generally, we're, we're looking at uh, south winds uh, for most of the island, really. Um, but specifically for, for those units, we're looking at south winds. And, you know, when, when you you call a direction of winds from the direction it's coming. So if, it, if it's a south wind, it's coming from the south. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then you're blowing smoke to, to the north. So that's, that's um, what we're looking for. Correct. We're, so we're mm-hmm. looking for south winds and, and, you know, you can have a little bit of a component from the east or a component from the west in it. But when you start to get your winds coming from uh, a strong west or a strong east uh, position, you know, and you start putting smoke over the rest of the island. And, and that's not what we want. You know, one, one for the health and safety of the island, but then also for uh the image, the public image of, of prescribed fire. And mm-hmm. the more that we can have uh, prescribed fire in a positive uh, view uh, to the public, the better. And, and, and when you start having negative impacts like that, it can negatively impact other fire programs, not just ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, and, and how did the um, Lindblad preserve, which um, that's that's the preserve with the four miles of trails right behind um, the SCCF Nature Center on CNCAP Road, for those of you who might not know. Um, and now why was that preserve selected for the first burn of this season? Well, it's... To... I can talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, In 2016, we got a contract from uh, FWC to hire some contractors to go in there and remove about 50 acres of buttonwood out of our uh, Spartina marshes. And as you know, buttonwood is a native tree, but when we are not able to burn enough, buttonwood expands its its range now a lot of that has to do with the hydrology we got a contract from the state to to remove a bunch of that buttonwood what's happened over the last few years that new buttonwood is starting to grow in there so we have to go out there every year and treat it with herbicide to keep it back but so much is coming up that the only way to really keep it how it was is to have a burn go through. So it's been a priority the last couple of years to get a burn in there, and it's starting to get really late in the year. So uh, an, another uh, factor is, is you know, what, what we call fire return intervals. 
so we try to keep in nature most ecosystems have a specific fire return interval and it just really depends on the vegetation type the climate hydrology uh different factors like that but sanibel has like a approximately a three to four year uh fire natural fire return interval and we can just tell that just by the the vegetation type and the 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 density of the vegetation um so you know we're one we're within that fire return interval Mm -hmm. uh, for those specific units and we're also um trying to burn specific areas so next year we can burn uh, other areas that are downwind of that and so we can't burn these large units that are there's about 80 plus acres that are south uh of the the north side of the limbrat preserve and for us to burn that uh we have to burn everything to the north first otherwise we're going to worry about spot fires and, and stuff like that um so that's another reason why we're <clears throat> we're looking at the the Lindblad Preserve, hmm. you know. And and so, how many years have you been doing this, Victor? These burns. I started. I believe my first burn was in two thousand and five. The first burn that I was ever on. When you were an intern. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and what is it? What is it like to be a part of the burn? What was your first impression when you were an intern and you did the first one? Well, you know, I, you know, before or prior to being an intern, you know, I had, I was aware of, of prescribed fire and the results that prescribed fire, you know, or the benefits of prescribed fire, but I'd never really seen it happen or, or, or been involved in it in, in any fashion. Um, but basically, you know, when I was an intern, I didn't really have any responsibility for the entire fire other than you know the the burn boss said take the strip torch walk down the fire line and light the spartina on fire so i was like okay this sounds pretty cool and uh it was uh it was really neat eye-opening um Wow. And now you're the burn boss. And so uh for this burn how how big will, will your crew be? And um who, you know, who will be, will it involve, will it include some of the partners of the prescribed burn task force? Yeah, it could, the, the crew numbers may vary by one or two, but it'll probably be around a, a dozen hmm. people from different organizations, several different organizations or partners. And, and that includes the city of Sanibel. The, the, yep, the, the Ford Forest Service, mm-hmm. uh, the Santa Bell Fire Department, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service will, will help us out too sometimes. Okay. So, um, so it's not always SCCF lands that are um, the, where we do the prescribed burns. You, we also burn in other like city owned or refuge lands. Is that right? Yeah, so well, we don't we don't do any of the uh, the burning on refuge land. The, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service takes care of that, mm-hmm. um, and they got a really big fire crew and, and a really good fire crew. They're they're very active on the island, 
um, but you know, we, we do primarily SCCF lands and then we also burn city lands where we have these like checkerboard properties where you have parcels that are SCCF parcels that are city, you know, so we kind of just burn those as, uh, individual units regardless of of you know who who owns it you know between mm-hmm. us and the city mm-hmm. so and we work pretty much hand in hand uh on, on those burns mm-hmm. and um how many burns are typically done in a year would you say it varies i mean some some years we are not able to do any and some years we've been able to do you know four mm. so and, and really four is it doesn't sound like a lot but three or four burns in one year out here is quite a bit because there, there's so much planning involved in it and the, the stars really have to align right to pull off a burn. So, you know, I think last year we got two burns in and, you know, those were pretty late season burns too. And so. By last year, you mean in 2019? Correct. So this would be the first burn of 2020? Correct. Okay. And um, uh, so what's the, what kind of outcomes have, have you seen? Um, at, you're out there on our preserved lands, um, maintaining them all the time. Um, what, you know, what has this done for our wildlife, uh, these prescribed burns? So the, the, the biggest thing you really notice right off the bat, <clears throat> is, excuse me, is uh, more diversity in uh in plant species about you know a month or two after the burn you really start to see the wildflowers really coming in different species of grasses and sedges that were being out competed by the uh by the larger vegetation or the thicker vegetation so you get rid of a lot of the competition mm-hmm. of the uh some of the larger species of or more aggressive species of plants and it allows uh, some of your smaller grasses and forbs to to get in there and uh, start growing. So you so you really notice a good good diver- diversity of vegetation. And that, and then what we see a lot of times is uh, increased activity by wading birds and uh, especially uh, birds of prey. You start seeing hmm. a lot more hawks in these areas, hmm. uh, barn owls, you know, stuff like that. And a, a really uh, neat thing that fire does for a lot of these habitats is it creates what's called a snag habitats so these are dead trees so that you know a a large buttonwood will will die during a fire but it weaves it we weave the dead tree there and then that becomes habitat for perching birds birds of prey um and even larger trees that can then be used as a cavity uh net for cavity nesting birds and we'll see that too sometimes another very important part of these burns is trying to keep these open grasslands open we have an endemic rat here on the island called the sanibal rice rat and Mm -hmm. a lot of our incentive to burn is to preserve the habitat of the sanibal rice rat which a very large study just completed a year ago and we found that the whole range of this rat that only lives on Sanibel it basically lives from about Legion Curve down to uh, about Tarpon Bay Road 
and West <laughs> Gulf. And that's its whole range in the whole world. And most of its habitat are these open Spartina marshes. So it's a struggle for us to try to keep these areas open. If we don't burn, it'll all become shrubs and buttonwood. And then the sambal rats can't live there. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's important to note that the sambal rice rat is not the rat that a lot of people have issues with on sambal. That's called a black rat, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. people on sambal call a palm rat. You know, just like there's cockroaches in Florida and we tend to call them palmetto bugs. Right. People on Sanibel call the exotic black rat a palm rat. Those are the ones that go into people's houses. Sanibel rice rats do not go near people. Uh, mm-hmm. They're they're very shy. They're not very dense and they live right by the water. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they actually hunt in the water. But if these open wetlands close in, then we will lose that rat. So mm-hmm. a lot of our burns, you know, are, are trying to keep that remaining open habitat there for the sandball rice. Rat. Oh, okay. So the Lindblad Preserve certainly has rice rats then. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Right on the side of our main building is one of the first places that they found them. Hmm. So the Eric Lindblad Preserve is a very important area for sandball mm-hmm. rice rats. And it's an important area also because of its connection with the Sanibel Slough or River, correct? Exactly, yeah. That interior wetlands. Um, So, uh, and it's named after the the director of the SCCF who I who hired you both, right? Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So, when was the last time um, that uh, land was burned? 2016, when we talk about burning a specific property, we're usually talking about burning the entire thing, but the, the last time portions of that property were burned was mm-hmm. 2016. And when you do the burn, I, you know, I covered one when I was a reporter back in the 90s and at the Bailey Tratch, and I remember seeing, um, you know, rabbits like scurrying out. And how, how does it affect wildlife? Does How does wildlife that exists in this area respond when the fire takes place? Well, I think a really important thing to remember about fire or, or what we call pyrogenic ecosystems or, or, or ecosystems that, you know, uh, typically have a lot of fire and fire is, is an environmental mm. filter. So typically anything that's going to be inside these types of habitats that burn frequently are going to have some kind of adaptation or behavioral trait that allows them to exist fires or in, in fire uh, communities. So what we see a lot is, like you said, the rabbits running across the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of burrows in, in these uh, mm. properties that they'll, they'll go in the, in the gopher tortoise burrows, armadillo mm. burrows. Um, a lot of the areas are, are wet. So it gives... <clears throat> a lot of the animals kind of refuge to, to seek shelter underwater snakes and, and frogs and turtles are able to get underwater. Um, hmm. So interesting. So, yeah. so uh, it, it does mimic what would naturally occur on the islands in some ways. It does. And, you know, but you know, our bar burn method is a little bit different than, you know, how a fire would naturally go Mm -hmm. 
you know, of course, we're burning against the wind, and typically a fire would, a natural fire mm-hmm. would go with the wind. So we're actually burning quite a bit mm-hmm. slower than what, you know, natural fires would mm-hmm. usually be. So that, you know, that also kind of gives some of the animals a, a little extra opportunity or a little extra time to, to kind of get mm-hmm. out of the way. Oh, well, that's interesting. And, and part of the purpose of these burns is also to avoid catastrophic wildfires. Now, in your time on the islands have you have there ever been any wildfires yes so wildfire is actually the reason why this uh, sccf burn program was actually established in 71 there was actually a really devastating wildfire uh, that broke out and um you know a couple years later the uh the board of sccf decided to implement a, a prescribed fire program um, but since I've been here, there's been several wildfires uh, that have been started, mostly in the uh, in the Santa Barbara Gardens Preserve, and that was that was just people that were going off uh, regular, you know, public people from the public just going off out into the woods and driving their vehicles around. These are catalytic converter caught the really fire. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I think that was. I think we've had three or three or four of those uh, since mm. I've been here. Um, so, mm-hmm. and but. so in, so they weren't started, like lightning hasn't started any fires that you know of. Not, not any large ones. A, a couple of people have seen, you know, lightning strike a cabbage palm and the cabbage palm oh. on fire and the rain, the rain put it out. So, you know, other than that, you know, that I know of, I haven't seen any other natural, uh, natural. Well, we had fires. that one over by, uh, mm-hmm. Clam Bayou. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do, actually. I mean, it was in a remote area, so it may have been a lightning strike. It may have been a cigarette that somebody threw onto land from a boat. We don't really know. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, now let's um, talk about, as we wrap up here, uh, how you notify the public. Um, when, you know, we've already put out the one announcement, let's use this Eric Lindblad burn that's coming up. So it's been two and a half weeks that people are aware that, that Victor is monitoring the environmental and weather conditions and a burn might occur. So what's the next step? How many days warning might um, the public get uh, that it once you set a date? So what we'll typically do, you know, like we already sent out the, the public notice, the, the city of Sanibel sent out a public notice. And then what we try to do is, you know, about three days. So, and then that gives us time. And about three days out, we can kind of get a pretty good idea of, of weather, you know, and that's mostly the wind direction, you know, and then after that, you know, we'll put out another public notice. And then we'll uh, we'll go door to door, usually uh, to areas that are going to be potentially affected mm-hmm. by smoke uh, or uh, traffic. Uh, businesses, we'll go to those businesses uh, on Santa Bell that, that might be affected too, and, and we'll give them a, a pamphlet and let them know that we're going to be uh, planning to burn in the next couple of days. And then the day of when. Um when you think the weather is right, then you, you still have another step to go through to actually get the permit from the Florida, um, the forest service, correct? Yeah. So basically as long as the morning of, as long as the weather Mm -hmm. looks good, the forest service 
every morning the Forest Service will decide on whether or not they're going to issue um, burn authorizations. Mm-hmm. And so basically you have to check the weather. We use uh, the NOAA Weather Service to get our, our fire weather. If everything looks good, we'll call the Forest Service up and see if they're authorizing prescribed fires. And then if they are and everything looks good, you know, we'll go ahead with it. Okay. And I know that I will be posting on social media and on our website to also uh, let people know when that day comes about. Um, And what do you think the chances are of this occurring um, in July, this burn? You know, I mean, as as long as we, if we get some good south winds and, and good weather conditions, I think the chances are pretty good. You know, right now, th- this week, it's it's not looking the greatest, but, you know, we're going to keep an mm-hmm. eye on it. Um, you know, the further we get into July, the, the less likely we are to burn. And that's only because uh, the fuel mm-hmm. moisture. You know, when, when we start getting a lot of fuel moisture out there, as we start picking up more and more rainstorms, you know, the ability to, to burn those, those areas diminishes rather quickly. So, so what is the optimal, uh, you know, between our dry season and our rainy season, when is the best time for these prescribed burns? Right at, right at, in that transition mm. period from, from dry to wet. Um you know, is really the mm-hmm. best time. And that's, that's historically the, 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 the natural time anyway, mm. when your, your fuels were still dry, but your lightning storms were starting to, to develop and, and you'd get a lightning strike. And because the fuels were dry, the lightning or the, the lightning would start a fire and it would spread pretty quick. Um, so that's, a, that's really the natural that, that April to, to July is really the natural um, fire season so that's really what we strive for on hmm. the island so it, it doesn't work the other way when you're transitioning out of wet season into dry no i mean it, it it's that's still a good time to burn and you know we generally in the fall you know you we seem to have a little stronger winds and and not necessarily in the mm-hmm. right direction um mm-hmm. The, the spring and summer is when we seem to have really the best wind directions. In late spring, early summer, you know, your, your tourist season is a little lower than it would be in the winter or the fall, maybe. So you don't have to worry so much about, you know, smoking out tourist areas or something like that. And then um, a final thing to mention, Chris, is there's also a, a protocol for um, residents who are um, smoke sensitive, correct? Yeah. The city of Sanibel actually has a list and that list is, is managed by Joel Mm -hmm. Cowett. And Mm -hmm. uh, he, he has a list of everybody that's smoke sensitive. So when a burn is imminent or almost imminent, he notifies all, all these people to let them know to stay inside or, or go off Island that day. Okay. And, and you can uh, be added to that list as well. If you need to, you, you just have to call the city of Sanibel. Okay. That's good to know. And then there's um, some other suggestions for uh, what residents who are nearby potential burns should do as well. Um, like close their windows and, and we'll, we'll put all that information out the day of a burn. Correct. Yes. 
And yeah, we recommend yeah. that you stay indoors, that you keep your windows closed. If you can put your car in the garage, mm-hmm. that would be a good idea because of the ash that might mm-hmm. fall down. Mm-hmm. But as you know, Sanibel was historically a grassland and a lightning strikes would hit this island a couple times a year and wildfires you know, would break out anywhere from every year to every four years, like somewhere in there. So the island would actually go through fire often. And hmm. as more and more people started to move on the island, uh, you know, when a wildfire broke out, they put it out, obviously, because they live there. And because of that, a lot of the island has become uh, hardwood hammocks. I mean, that's not the only reason, but that is part of the reason. If your house is up against conservation land, it makes a lot of sense to try to firescape your house. Don't have plants that burn easily, like right up against your house. Stuff like cabbage palms, spartina grass. If you have that, you want to keep that far away from your house. Uh, Sure. Especially when you think of the dry season we had this year, we had quite a drought. Uh, Yes. mm -hmm. Well, that's... Yeah, and to trim the dead palm fronds, probably try to keep any dead materials out of your yard. Is that? Yeah. Yes. A lot of our lands have a fire line that'll go up against the back of the properties. And we try to maintain those fire lines for burns. And if a wildfire breaks out, we have a way to get back there to try to put it out. It's just that we recommend the people that they don't put plants that are pyrogenic that do well in fire up against their house. It'll help us with our job and it'll help protect their properties. And um, so we appreciate the work that you do. You, How many acres do you, do you guys manage of uh, preserve lands on Sanibel? Well, if you look at our list, we manage about 2,200 acres total, but not all that's on Sanibel. Mm-hmm. Some of those are mangrove islands out in the bay we have a couple properties out on north captiva but on sanibel i would say about 1200 acres are managed regularly and some don't require a a lot of management but as far as like natural habitat trying to keep open grasslands it's about 1200 well we'll have a discussion about that um more on another podcast we Um, appreciate learning about um, how you plan these prescribed fires and um, we'll uh, see if this burn takes place this summer or not. Uh, Any uh, last um, words of advice you have there, Victor, for what people can expect? No, uh, you know, I think the the biggest thing to stress is that we really try to to, to keep public safety is really a top priority for us. And, And, not only for our burn program, but like I said earlier, you know, if if we're if if we're doing things, we're smoking out communities. It's going to be negative. It's going to have a negative impact for us, but it's also going to have a negative impact for uh, prescribed fire throughout the entire mm-hmm. state. So what we we really try stressing public safety and, and keeping smoke out of communities, and that that's a that's a really important com- component for us. Well, Um, and thanks for taking the time today to help explain, because I'm sure public education is equally important so that people understand why these burns are necessary. 
And you've done it. You both have done a very nice job of explaining that. Uh, So thanks for your time. Uh, Chris, we'll uh, have you back on the show again. And I'm sure we will get you back out here too, Victor. We're trying to get more staff on the podcast so that our audience can learn more about um, all of the dedicated professionals um, who work at SCCF and the work that we do. So thank you both for being on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Barbara. And thanks to all of you for listening to Land, Water, Wildlife, SCCF's podcast, Connecting You to Nature.